Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute. Fetzer supports a movement of organizations that are applying spiritual solutions to society's toughest problems. Learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my extended conversation with poet and chronicler of communal remembering, Clint Smith. There is a shorter, produced version of this conversation wherever you found this podcast. Um, Clint, do you have any questions for me before we start? I don't think so, okay. except I'm, uh, I'm one of those people, what do they say? Um, long-time listener, first-time caller. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> so, well, that makes me happy, really happy. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful show. Thank you. Um, well, let's—I don't want to say anything until we start. Okay. All right. My name is Clint Smith. I'm sitting here with my three books. I look that's good. To- no, no, that's good. So one thing I I want to share with you is that um, I think the producer you've been dealing with is Kayla Edwards, and you you probably haven't made this connection, but she was the opinion section editor of the Davidson newspaper, like you. Oh, wow. I think you met her a couple of years ago and took a picture and shared it on Twitter. Anyway. I remember that. Do you? Oh, yeah. my gosh. And I asked oh, wow. her. I said, she said, because she put this in the prep, and I said, did you tell him? Did you remind him? And she said, no. So I want you to know that as we and start. And now she works for you all. Yeah, and she's on this oh, line somewhere. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Yeah, it's a very exciting. Hello, hello. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I, I got such a kick out of that. I think yeah. that was uh, like five or six years ago now. Yeah, I think that I couldn't find the tweet anymore, but... um. Yeah, it was. It, it feels like a nice personal connection here, and so we're, she's excited, and we're all excited. Um, so I think you know, I never, um, I never quite know what the shape of an interview will be until I actually do the prep, even though I might think I know. And this time, something really emerged that may be a little different from what I thought or from what you've done before. But I, I think we, I hope we can have a little adventure here. I will follow um, you wherever we go. Okay. <laughs> So, I mean, as you know, you know, basically what we do is, is you know, our, 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 our lens on everything is the human condition, and then we can pick up any subject and look at it in that way. Mm. And we just started this, you know, we, we went off the radio last year, so now we're doing two podcast seasons a year, and we just started the, the second one. And we're, we're kind of having this twin. So one of the things I'm, I'm interested in and what we're circling around is how this moment in the life of the world is calling us to get more conscious and claim the fullness of our of what it means to be human and of our agency as human beings mm. and that has been coming at us in all the reckonings that have just become more insistent and existential mm-hmm. and also i think this new ai and the way our lives with technology is evolving also can be a thing that just really presses us, us to a new kind of clarity about what it means to be human and how we want to live and who we will be to each other and what we want for all of our children. And I think it gets at, you know, can we, can we um, you know, get a new kind of clarity on, on the fullest meaning of intelligence in mm-hmm. human life and also how embodied that is, um, which is something that is not actually accessible to AI and and even the physicality of memory and language and I feel like this is something that is so vibrant in in all of your work 
in how you how you go about your research and and how you write this connection between language and words and physicality and place and the body and and also how poetry distinctively gets at this mm. so i think i'm kind of first and foremost speaking to you as a poet and seeing how that sensibility as well as a way with words really infuses everything you do including how you write about history um and yeah so how does that sound i will lead <laughs> but <laughs> um i hope you're up for that yep okay um <clears throat> so yeah and i just i feel like you're um you've kept working with this in different aspects of your life that I almost started to think of as kind of different laboratories for investigation. Mm. So a high school classroom, prisons, our communal reckoning around the history of this country, our history of slavery, our racial present. And um, and I feel like your contribution to that is kind of consistently transcending this realm of arguments and mere idea and kind of calling us back into our bodies, mm. into something that can be lived and breathed and moved forward. And so one thing I want to do also is just occasionally ask you to read a poem. Mm -hmm. And also if there's, if, if as we're speaking or as, as I ask you to read something, if there's something that comes to you that you'd like to read, um, I just welcome you to bring that forward. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, quick, quick logistics yeah, question. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I know that there's, you've historically had the sort of radio version and then the unabridged version. Yeah. Is that still a thing or like I guess how embedded within that question is how should I like if I flub a poem and do I will it be edited and if I start over or how does yeah work? no it's edited okay. yeah we don't um, we are we're, we've been released from the public radio clock which is very restrictive and had us kind of to the nanosecond every time got it um, so sometimes we're just editing longer but yeah we you know we have a we we have a high aesthetic here, so, mm -hmm. <laughs> so we will make things beautiful. All and right. so don't worry about flubbing or starting over or being nonlinear. Sounds good. Okay. Um, so, well, first of all, it's just it's um, wonderful to speak with you. Um, I'm so happy to have you here. It's a real pleasure. Um, and you, very importantly, were born and and raised um, in New Orleans. Um, and then, um, very dramatically, was was it your senior year in high school that Hurricane Katrina happened? It was three days into my senior year of high school. Uh, three days, okay. So, I mean, one thing that strikes me when, I, when I'm thinking about that is you had this experience of extreme ecological catastrophe and sudden displacement, and, and yet that, that phenomenon is something that's going to be ever more ordinary mm. in our world <laughs> um but i just I, I kind of have this picture of you yeah three days into your senior year in this place where you and your family were so rooted and then you end up in houston in a new world and new school at that moment in your life when we're all on a kind of cusp of catharsis anyway um I don't know. I know sometimes you invoke physics and you're as interested in those things as I am. It almost feels like you kind of stepped into this multiverse version of what your life might have been. I wonder I wonder how that felt to you, um, that drama. Yeah, I think in, in so many ways I'm still sort of understanding and unpacking 
the sort of repercussions and implications of what Katrina meant in my my own life, in the life of my family, in the life of my city. Um, and I just recently turned 35. Um, Hurricane Katrina was when I was 17. So this past year, I had been thinking a lot about how it, it sort of bifurcated my life and that yeah. my it was half a lifetime ago that I was displaced in that way. And and I think having been removed from New Orleans so uh, suddenly, so unexpectedly, so uh, violently in many ways, I what I do think it did was sort of give me a deeper appreciation for the way that the sensibilities of New Orleans, the texture of New Orleans, the culture of New Orleans remained a part of me, mm. even when I felt as if, even when I didn't know it was still a part of me, because it felt like I never got almost a sense of closure. Like you, you know, my group of friends and I from high school will talk often about just like what our senior year would have been or could have yeah, been. Right. You know, it's the culmination yeah. of this lifetime of childhood you know, memories and opportunities and uh, and it kind of you know it felt like we were moving into our fullest selves that we had a sort of more grounded sense of who we were who, who we wanted to be uh, again you know your senior year is supposed to be the sort of culmination of of all that came before and and we never got to live that yeah. in that way and so I do think sometimes about what you know you mentioned the sort of multiverse Sometimes I imagine what an alternative reality um, in which there was no Katrina, what yeah. what sort of shape my life would have taken on, um, you know, and it's obviously impossible to know, but but it is something I, I sort of think about, not with any sort of regret, mostly with just a sense of curiosity. Mm-hmm. I, I actually, I actually want to, at the end, I mean, you, you continue to write about this. So I mean, clearly, as you say, it's, it's something that's with you. And I, I, I suspect that you'll be processing it um, for all of your days. Um, and I think I want to, and you, you've written, you, you have, um, have written two, two volumes of poetry. I think near the end, I want you to read one of the newer poems you've written about Katrina. But what's in, one thing that's interesting to me is um, you've also written essays about it. But I think that in this you know, this um, story, this part of you is such an amazing example of how much poetry can convey in so few words. Um, mm. So I, I was wondering if you might read this poem from um, Counting Descent, um, which is on page 45, on observing my home after the storm. Again, like you wrote an article um, called Strangers in Our Home, Why Writing About Hurricane Katrina is Both Impossible and Necessary. Um, and somehow this poem gets at so much of that. Would you kind of set the scene for this poem? Uh, it's so interesting to return to mm. sort of old collections and old work. <laughs> um, and to think about, you know, where you were when you wrote this. You know, I wrote so many of these poems over a decade ago. Um, and I can't remember the last time I I read this poem either to myself or out loud. But... Mm. Uh, you know, I, when we returned to my home in New Orleans for the first time, it, uh, was with, it was in October, I believe, October or November following the storm that had happened in August. And, you know, for, for weeks, for months, uh, 80% of the city had been underwater. 
and our home was included in that. Uh, I remember sitting on the couch in my aunt and uncle's house in Houston, Texas, watching as the, the grocery store we went to, the church we went to, the school I went to, seeing images of these places under eight, nine, 10, 11 feet of water. Mm. And, you know, spending weeks imagining what the inside of my own home would have looked like. Um, and we eventually went um, when it became clear that we wouldn't be returning in any meaningful way. Um, but as soon as the water receded, uh, we did go back to see what we could retrieve, if anything. Um, and I just always remember, you know, we were wearing these almost sort of what felt to me like chemical suits, you know, almost mm -hmm. almost as if, you know, as if I was watching myself in a sort of zombie apocalypse um, sort of uh, experience with the mask and uh, and everything. But I'll always remember that smell. You know, I think that that is, memory is a funny thing. And, and I think that, you know, so much of my memory is also tied to, to pictures that we have. And, um, you know, there's a, one photo of, um, a chair in our dining room hanging from the chandelier in, mm. in our dining room. And it and that sort of, I think, represents and embodies the, the chaos that existed. But you open the door and there was mold everywhere. And, you know, our home had been uh, sitting in 10 feet of water and, uh, you know, kitchen plates, china that have been part of our family uh, are sort of broken in pieces across the floor. There's mold growing across the wall. Uh, and the smell just kind of, I think it took me a few minutes before I was able to actually step inside because it was so uh, pungent. It was so forceful, almost as if somebody was, like an invisible hand was pushing me out of the door. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, writing for me is and always has been uh, an attempt to uh, sort of capture a moment in time, to capture a feeling, capture an observation, capture a conversation um, that serve as a sort of time capsule that allows me to remember um, who I've been, what I've seen, uh, who I have been in relationship to the world around me. And, mm. and this poem is, uh, is a, an attempt to have done so. On observing my home after the storm. One, the smell so pungent you can see it the fermentation of sky prickling at your skin, an alloy of brackish and sewer water stinging nostrils, the residue of cries for help, eyes unprepared for this sort of wreckage, the maggots demarcate the space between what was and what never will be again. Steel door hinges split at the seam, every wall a groundswell of lusterless green. Glass has meandered across the floor, a cacophony of shattered skin. The overturned dinner table sits on its side, as if to protect the rest of the house from the night it knows will come. The floorboards do not creak. They whimper, distraught by all they could not prevent. Two. But what are these words but an empty lyric? What then is anything beyond the language we give it? What else do we have to describe the carnage we see but all that is woefully inadequate? 
You know, that line, that question, and of course poetry is such a wonderful container for questions. Um, what then is anything beyond the language we give it? That is such a striking question, and I just wonder, like, how do you, what does that question mean to you? How do you, how do, how do you, how do you start to answer it? I think it's something I, I sort of wrestle with, you mm-hmm. know, all, all the time. Um, as, as I said, sort of writing is, is almost an act of mindfulness for me. It's an act of being present, um, of being present with my memories, of being present with that which is in front of me, um, and attempting to use language as a way to, uh, to sort of home in on the specificity, on the granularity, on the minutia, the specific texture of what a feeling is, what a moment is, what an observation is. And at the same time, sort of wrestling with if that very act can ever, if the act of writing about such an image or such a memory can ever be commensurate with the image or memory or feeling itself. Um, And I think it's something that I'm interested in, both in the context of language, but also in the context of art and a lot of my sort of uh, nonfiction work, my journalistic work. I've I've been thinking a lot about monuments and memorials mm-hmm. and museums, and and I think in a similar way, one of the questions that sort of undergird my my exploration and examination of of these spaces is if you know a memorial to a tragedy, a monument to an act of violence, if those things can ever capture the the horror and and the violence and the distress and the despair that 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 it is attempting to remember um or if it is inevitably never going to do so um and i think you know whether it be sort of visual art whether it be language i'm always interested in the extent to which our efforts to remember uh, our past, our efforts to understand what we see in front of us, if those attempts at language or attempts at art can never fully capture uh, what these things are, what these things have been. Um, and I don't know that they can, mm-hmm. but I also don't know that that means that we stop trying. You know, it, I, I, if I think about some of the different places you've, you've um, inhabited in your professional life, and if I think about them as kind of laboratories where you're working through some of these questions that you've already been surfacing, um, you know, you're becoming a high school teacher um, feels like it continues to be something that is just absolutely central to your identity, how it kind of set you off on everything you did after that. Um, and I, I wonder, I, I would love for you to um, just introduce Paulo Ferreira to those of us who is a really a Brazilian educator and philosopher who's really formative um, in, in, I think, a way of, you know, not just thinking about, about educating, but thinking about um, life and everything you, you continued to um, have continued to do. Um, what, 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 what was that formation for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think you're spot on. Being a high school English teacher is, uh, it, it helps shape everything for me. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't be a writer, um, at least not in the way that I am. I wouldn't think about my work 
uh, what my sort of responsibilities are, what my commitments are, um, what the sort of ethics of my work should look like. Um, being a high school teacher shaped everything. I mean, it is, I feel very lucky to, to, to read and write and, and think and for, for a living. Um, but man, like sitting in a high school classroom with a bunch of teenagers and just talking about books was, it was the best job I ever had. It was so fulfilling. It was so remarkable to sit with a group of 15 and 16 year olds talking about the way that a book is in conversation with the various facets of their own lives and to see that that could serve as an entry point for them to understand the way that their lives are in conversation with one another yeah. in ways that might have never been possible without that text, in ways that might have never been possible without that one sentence in that one paragraph uh, that somebody was able, that one student pointed out in a way that illuminated something for everybody else in that classroom. Um, those specific moments of magic were so, I mean, there's nothing like it. And I think that that is one of the, the remarkable things about teaching. Um, and the, one of the remarkable things about teaching that age group um, of young people who are sort of coming into themselves yeah. and, and developing a, uh, a more acute, uh, a fuller, um, more nuanced sense of the world of the world around them and paulo freire you know he is a, a brazilian scholar and educator um who as you say was incredibly formative for me um i read his book um perhaps his most popular text uh, pedagogy of the oppressed um and the essence of of that book is thinking about how part of the role of education is to help people who um have been subjected to violence, who have been subjected to oppression, who has been subjected to um, uh, despair uh, or, or resource um, extraction at the hands of the state, at the hands of their government, how, how education can be a way to help them understand that the world is social construction and thus can be reconstructed and deconstructed and made into something new and that the reality of the world around us is not an inevitability. Right. It is the result of decisions that have been made often by people in power, often by people who look a certain way or move in a certain way or speak in a certain way or have access to certain resources that they prevent others from having access to. And that that is what shapes the material landscape that we all move through. And that once you understand that, you know, part of what Freire talks about is it, is it helps you, it helps disabuse you of the idea that your station in life is something that is sort of inevitably a facet of who you are, yeah. but rather as the result of decisions that have been made over generations, over decades, over centuries. And f for me, that idea is so freeing. It's so profound. Um, because I remember, I remember being a kid growing up in New Orleans uh, in the 80s and 90s and, and just being inundated with messages about all the things that were wrong with black people and that, you know, the reason New Orleans had so much crime and so much poverty and so much violence and so many people in prison uh, were because of things that were wrong with black people and things that black people had failed to do. And I knew it was wrong, but I didn't know how to 
say it was wrong. I didn't have the language. Mm. I didn't have the toolkit. I didn't have the historical context with which to push back against it. And as a result, I think part of what happened is I began to sort of internalize these messages. Um, and because when somebody keeps telling you something about yourself or your community and you don't have the language with which to push back against it, it can be a sort of, it was a sense of paralysis yeah. almost. And it wasn't until I read certain books and was introduced to certain art and watched certain films or documentaries and, um, and studies that helped, again, disabuse me of this idea that, that there was something inherent to any community that, that made their uh, position static. Uh, but that instead, the reason one community looks one way and another community looks another way is not because of the people in those communities, but because of what has been done to those communities, generation after generation after generation. And I wanted to, I knew the way that that books had freed me in that way. And I wanted to bring that to my students um, to the extent that I could. I taught in Prince George's County, Maryland, um, you know, a school that was, um, you know, predominantly black and Latino a school that was uh, predominantly uh, students on free and reduced lunch, students yeah. who um, were undocumented, students who were in and out of the criminal legal system. Uh, and and I wanted the, the conversations we had in our class and the books we read and the lessons we collectively learned to help them understand that the reason their communities look the way that they did Again, we're, we're not inevitable, but you know, we're the result of decisions that people had made. And, I, and also, just I feel like what's coming through here is, you know, language as more than mere words, right? Language mm. as, as, as power, right? The, mm. to, to, have the, to have the language to, to name something or, or not to have it is, is, um, is, 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 is also about how one can move through the world and move the world— um, it's, you've written and spoken about an interesting kind of transition you made. Um, you know, following on how you know that that approach you were taking to seeing um, the world that your students inhabited and how it constricted them. And you've talked about how you, for a while, you know, you wanted to go head on to the to the issues, to these to these societal problems and these societal constructions, and you started to find that 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 actually wasn't the way um, or the only way for them to do the work to um, to actually step into that agency. Um, like you've talked, mm. you, say, let's see, what you talked about, you, you found that you had to actually draw out their identities and um, that for them to, um, you said, in order to do the work of understanding what you're politically committed to, you have to understand who you, who and what you are committed to as a person. And you use some interesting language that demands a sort of stealth reflexivity and a lot of identity work. Um, would you say some more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think another way of putting that is that I came in real hot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, I read a lot of Paulo Freire, and I was a young 22-year-old teacher, and I was... Uh, I came into you know my tenth grade English class and and I think I was I was so committed to going in and immediately sort of creating this classroom of like freedom fighters and revolutionaries <laughs> right. who were gonna look around them 
their school and their community and see things that were wrong and they were going to be marching and they were going to be picketing and they were going to be, you know, leading, you know, demonstrations and rallies and they were going to develop this sense of of their political, uh, the political landscape around them and, and march to Capitol Hill and, you know, change the the political landscape of, of Prince George's County and Maryland and, and the whole country. And I think I came, you know, I remember there was this moment where, uh, like, my students were walking into the classroom on the first day and everybody sat down and I went to the board I very dramatically grabbed a piece of chalk um, I think I had watched like too many Denzel Washington movies <laughs> okay. and I grabbed this piece of chalk and I wrote like on the board mass incarceration uh, pr- school to prison pipeline immigration reform uh, climate change and just like kept writing all these different things and then I turned around and I put the chalk on the very dramatically like kind of threw it on the ground and I was like this year we're going to solve all that. (laughs) And they just looked at me and were like, like, man, where's the worksheet? Like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, who is, who is this kid who is like not that many years older than us in here doing a terrible Denzel Washington impression. And, and I think that was the beginning of me realizing that like, you know, these, these kids are kids Mm -hmm. and they're, which is to say that they're human Mm -hmm. and they are full of complexity and uh, a three-dimensionality and that like they they are not simply avatars of political ideology or they are not simply people who um, will like you know look at an issue and see it exactly in the same way that I do and and so I think that part of what I realized as I as I wrote there was that I had to step back and before you know, books and literature and history could be used as a way to um, politicize or radicalize um, young people, um, that that books had the opportunity to help young people understand who they were. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, and whatever comes after that is what will come, right? Because for, part of what I learned is that that is, that is my job in that classroom. My job was to bring literature and to bring ideas um, across, you know, contemporary literature, um, you know, sort of literature of the past um, and to put it in front of them to help guide them uh, and facilitate conversations around these, these books that help them better understand who they were in relationship to the world that is in front of them in relationship to their history and in relationship to the future that they want to step into and the future they want to build. Um, and the sort of sense of a political identity is merely one part right. of a much broader, um, you know, e- ecosystem of the self uh, that that would develop over the course of, you know, our time together and obviously throughout the course of their lives. You know, there's such wisdom in that and intelligence, right, about not how we want to be able to teach or to think that we grow or we can help other people grow, but how it actually works. Mm. You know, I mean, one thing, I'm impatient in, in our culture a bit with this kind of pedestal that telling a story is up on. Um, and yet... What you're talking about is 
is this is is drawing forth the story and the question of so what right the story and and then the ability to think in a more complex and conscious way about so what that in relationship to the world mm. right and um mm-hmm. there's so much in what you just said that that could be learned in terms of how we culturally are about advocacy and you know arguing for things or against things um i and kind of getting at this idea of like what is intelligence and what is education and you know how how do we learn and grow and what the point mm-hmm. of that is right this is all of this was kind of brewing in this story and then so you ended up um you ended up uh taking yourself out of the classroom into graduate school um but my sense is, as much to live more fully into what that was teaching you and calling you to. Um, and then also what interests me is when you did go to graduate school, um, and you went to graduate school at Harvard, I feel like you there had this pull back to needing to have your hands and your heart in life, real life, on the ground. And, and then you also started teaching in prisons. Is that is that a fair um, uh, encapsulation of that particular yeah. event? Yeah, I mean, so I I was in the classroom, and and part of what I kept thinking about was the sort of larger um, landscape of social and historical and, and, and economic realities that shaped the lives of my students. Um, I realized that my school, you know, the school where I taught, and any school, is merely one island Mm. in a sort of much longer and larger archipelago um that uh that shaped what how my students move through the world and and it is an essential space and it is a um an incredibly formative space but i also wanted to gain a deeper understanding for myself about the sort of interconnectedness of all of those different parts of the the sort of social ecosystem um and I wanted to understand, you know, particularly uh, in more depth, the relationship between uh, our education system and our prison system. Um, and so I went to graduate school. And it's interesting because my entire graduate school experience was very animated by uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and and that's in part because of the same week that I started grad school, uh, Mike Brown was killed. In Ferguson. And so in those, you know, that first year and that second year, um, you know, and the sort of what felt like a sort of an endless cascade of images and videos that so many of us remember um, of people being killed at the hands of police, of people being killed at the hands of vigilante, people um, being uh, brutalized in in front of us um, in a way that perhaps had never um, gained so much consistent uh, social and political traction. Um, I w- you know, I was there and I was sitting in the library for 12 hours a day as, as PhD students do. And, um, and I was reading these books that sort of explained and gave historical context to help understand why so much of what we were seeing happen in front of us was happening like what are the uh the judicial the legislative the 
public policy realities um, that sort of are undergirding so much of the unrest uh, that that was bubbling at the surface. And I also came to realize uh, that I'm someone who, unless I am placing myself in proximity to the thing that I am studying and thinking about, then I can I can lose touch with the, the humanity of it. Mm. I can lose touch with the, the urgency of it. Um, and so for me, you know, if I'm sitting around, you know, studying prisons and studying racism and studying inequality, studying mass incarceration, but not making myself proximate to incarcerated people, then it can very quickly become uh, an intellectual exercise, um, not in any sort of malevolent sort of way but just yeah. it, it, you know you sit around yeah. reading Michel Foucault all day but don't spend time in conversation with people who are actually suffering at the hands of the system that he describes then it can I just didn't want to live only in the world of theory and ideas I wanted to you know place my feet in those spaces and so I started teaching at a at a prison in Massachusetts and you know, it, it was the most important thing that I did, I think, in my entire graduate in school a graduate career. What, experience. What did you, how would you talk about what, how that further deepened and nuanced your understanding of what intelligence and education are and what they are for? What, how, how we seek knowledge and learn and grow and what is the point of that? So the first group of... Um, folks I worked with when I was teaching at the prison were a group of men who were serving life life sentences without parole. Um, and it was the first time I'd ever been in an adult prison. I'd been in some juvenile detention facilities before. I'd done some writing and poetry workshops. Um, but I'd never been inside of an adult prison um, and and spent time with people who were currently incarcerated in said prison. And I you know, I, I kind of mentioned this before in the context of my students, um, and I feel like this is a recurring theme in my life and, and emerges in much of my work, but but it's you're just reminded of the three-dimensionality and the complexity and the humanity of, of people. Um, and that, you know, the men I was working with were, were fathers and sons mm-hmm. and brothers and husbands and uh and friends and that they were so some of them were incredibly funny some of them were incredibly um serious some of them were incredibly um uh brilliant you know just brilliant uh some and but i also think that some of them that they were people who had done things or made mistakes that remind all of us of um, the messiness of what it means to be human. And almost all of them grew up in situations um, that were shaped by poverty, that were shaped by violence. And one of the things I kept thinking about the whole time I was in there was like, but for the arbitrary nature of birth and circumstance, it very easily could have been me inside of this prison rather than somebody who gets to walk in and out of it yeah. with a notebook to teach a class, right? It, 
it, it was very clear to me in the stories that they told about their lives and the things that they wrote um, about their lives that it, had I been born into similar circumstances that some of these men had been born into, it would have been very difficult for me not to come in contact with the criminal legal system. It would have been very difficult for me not to experience a sense of fear that creates a sense of desperation. Hmm. Uh, it would have been very difficult for me not to be, um, to bear witness to a sense of incessant violence that what, you know, that social scientists tell us impacts the sort of brain chemistry yeah. of, of young people. And so, and, and that's not to say, I don't, I want to be clear that it's not to say that there is an inevitable trajectory for young people who grow up in poverty or in situations surrounded by violence. That's not the case. But it is important for us to take seriously the way that so many people who end up in prison are growing up in scenarios and are growing up in circumstances that are shaped by those realities. And I think it was just, so it was just really um, humbling for me. And it was an important reminder, again, of the, the sort of the way that birth and circumstance and things that are beyond our control, things that are beyond our decisions, shape um, the trajectory of, of our lives. And, and that reminder, I think for me, kept, um, allowed there to remain a sense of urgency um, to, to the, work, the academic work that I was doing, mm -hmm. the scholarly work that I was doing, um, and a sense of responsibility, you know, as someone who, who could have been in that scenario um, but was not, you know, what responsibility do I have to, to sort of examine the, the carceral landscape that, that they are a part of, and also to bring attention to the, the stories and the complexities of who these men are, um, which isn't to say that they are perfect because they're not, because none of us are perfect, no. but to talk about who, who they are and the stories they tell me um, as a way to remind folks that these are not, um, the folks in prisons are not monsters or are not sing, you know, as, as Brian Stevenson, Stevenson always talks about how people are not and should not be defined by the worst thing they've ever done. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's what that experience did for me. And I, you know, I think also at a place like Harvard, um, uh, and, and a lot of the way school is conceived of in the U S, um, the purpose of learning and education is towards this trajectory forward, right? And mm. so you're teaching, you know, you were teaching people who might never move beyond those walls. Mm. Um, but I, it, yeah, there's 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 something I I it, you know even talking about people growing up in a in an atmosphere of fear which led to despair is. Um, is to pay an appropriate reverence to the to the power of fear in the human body, mm. um, which we're learning by way of science. It's not that's not just an idea. Um, I mean, what is? Yeah, I. How did how did you think about the value of education in a context like that, which was not going to lead to the kind of trajectory, um, which is always just so fanciful and right mm. illusory in many ways and um yeah and even just intelligence what that means in that kind of life 
Yeah, and this is what I ended up writing my dissertation about, mm -hmm. um, thinking about what, what does education mean to someone who was told as a child uh, that they were going to spend the rest of their life in prison. Uh, for those who might not be familiar, the United States is the only country in the world that sentences children to life without the possibility of parole. Yeah. Um, while mandatory life without parole has been rendered unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, uh, life without parole still exists um, as an option. Uh, and there are thousands of people who are incarcerated across this country who were sentenced to life without parole as children. Um, and so, you know, for me, I was thinking a lot about, and, and it began when I was, you know, spending time with these men who were in their, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And you're looking around and and you see these, these men who've been in prison since they were 15, 16, 17 years old, and who have been offered no, you know, for so long who were offered no opportunity um, to ever uh, be released. And, and so I was interested in this idea, well, well what, what motivates someone to learn? Like, what motivates yeah. someone yeah. To, to read poetry, to, to write a novel, to, to learn geometry, to, yeah. to learn physics, you know, what, to get a degree? What, what is... What motivates people to do so, even when the, and you, you alluded to this, like the ostensible, uh, the sort of social utilities that yeah. we often associate education with, you know, you get the degree so that you can get a good job, so that you can buy a house and a car and feed your family and, you know, go on vacation. Yeah. And, you know, when those things are stripped away from you, what what is the thing that motivates people? Um, and and as you can imagine, it's, you know, people are not homogenous and it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And in my conversations and research, um, I discovered uh, that there were a range of motivations for folks. But one thing that was interesting and, and maybe that I didn't expect was that so many of these folks that I spent time with and observed and interviewed they still, even in the face of, you know, constitutional realities that told them something different, still believed that there was the chance that they might get out mm. of prison one day. Mm. And they, they had to hold on to this sense of hope. They had to hold on to this, even, you know, this 0.0001% Mm. Uh, possibility that they might get out one day. And, part, and so part of what initially motivates people to participate in some of these prison education programs um, is, uh, and some of the programs, you know, and we I'm defining education broadly here because there's, you know, programs where you can get a degree and mm. then there's programs where you can learn a trade and programs. But what is true is that the people who um, ultimately have, are, are pardoned, or have their sentence commuted by a governor, or who um, do get out, you know, whether it's 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, are the people who participated in those programs mm. as a way to demonstrate 
that they remain committed, remain motivated, that they have a certain set of skills that would uh, could be used as justification for them uh, upon release. But th- the problem is that that happens so, it happens so rarely. But even if it happened to one out of a thousand incarcerated people, it is, you had to believe that you could be that one. Because that is what sustains you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, it becomes difficult. But what's interesting is that that is the motivation of so many of them when they were young men, right? And they were, you know, if you're 17, 18 years old, you're like, I just need to figure out how I can get out of here. And so they start participating in these programs. And then what happens as they begin to participate in these programs is that it it doesn't not become about hoping to get out one day, but it also becomes about the experience of like learning itself mm-hmm. and the experience of education sometimes for the first time in many of these guys lives being used as a way to better understand who you are in relationship right, to there the it world. is it's that, that same that same place you found you had to take your high school students exactly it's who you are okay exactly. I, there's so much to talk about i i want to talk about how the word was passed um where again, you know, we we've we've been talking about word and 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 body and 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 language and who you are and story and how all of that is intertwined. And you know, one of the kind of distinctive contributions of this book. I mean, I I don't know that I saw this word used, but to me, um, it it's it kind of a pilgrimage that you took, mm. um, uh, to places and um. And, you know, you mentioned monuments a little while ago, and and it was kind of sparked, it kind of gestated in your mind as statues started coming down, um, which were, you know, symbolic and, of course, not just symbolic, but these physical things. Um, And so this was really a pilgrimage, you know, know, it it was about history, but it was about standing on certain ground, right? It was about being physically present to it. Um, and, you know, I was so interested to find that, well, first of all, would you talk about this, just this phrase, how the word was passed, where that came from, what that, why that is the title of the book? Yeah, I think maybe for some context, uh, for folks, it, it might be helpful to understand that the, the origin story for this book, uh, was in 2017, when I watched uh, several Confederate statues come yeah. down in my hometown in New Orleans, statues of PGT Beauregard, Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee. And as I was watching these statues come down, I was thinking about what it meant that I grew up in a majority black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people. And thinking about, well, what are the implications of that? What does it mean that to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard? To get to the grocery store, I had to go down Jefferson Davis Parkway. Yeah. That my middle school was named after a leader of the Confederacy. That my parents still live on a street named after someone who owned over 150 enslaved people. Because, yeah. you know, the thing is that we know that symbols and names and iconography aren't just symbols, yeah. but are reflective of the stories that people tell. And those stories shape the narratives that communities carry. And those narratives shape public policy. And yeah. public policy shapes the material conditions of people's lives. Yeah. Which doesn't mean that if you just take down a statue of Robert E. Lee or erase the racial wealth gap or you change the name of a Jefferson Davis sign, you create more economically egalitarian schools. But I think it it, it does help us understand the ways that certain communities have been uh, harmed 
throughout American history and helps us understand how how certain stories are told through um, the images and the narratives that are represented and embodied. And therefore the import of starting to shift those. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so I I did sort of, I had this moment where I, you know, I was like, I am the, the descendant of enslaved people. My grandfather's grandfather was enslaved. I grew up in a city that was the heart of the domestic slave trade. And I don't know enough about the history of slavery in a way that feels commensurate to the impact and legacy that it's had on this country. And so I, I, I did feel like I had to go on a sort of pilgrimage. I had to, uh, I wanted to go visit monuments and memorials and museums and cemeteries and prisons and these places that, that told the story of this history in, in, in their bars, in their soil, mm-hmm. in, in, in the buildings that still stood from that period of time. And so, yeah, I traveled across the country um, visiting all of these different places that, uh, and examining to what extent these places were reckoning with that history, to what extent they were failing to reckon with that history, and to what extent they were kind of doing something in between. Um, yeah. And for me, you know, the the title, How the Word is Passed, comes from uh, one of the first places I went was Monticello Plantation, um, which is uh, the Thomas Jefferson's home in uh, in Virginia. And they've done a lot of work on trying to excavate the histories and stories of the enslaved people who were held there. Thomas Jefferson uh, owned over 600 enslaved people over the course of his lifetime. And part of what is so fascinating about Monticello is that they're such an incredible example of how, if you are a historical site or a museum, that the story you told yourself about yourself or the story you told the world about yourself you know, 5, 10, 20, 30 years ago doesn't have to be the same story you tell about yourself today, that you can learn and learn about your own history and recognize that you have a set of responsibilities to tell a set of stories that maybe you hadn't told. And, you know, just the way you said that, that's also a description of a life where you are growing Mm. more mature and more wise, right? Absolutely. You and I, I wouldn't so. tell the same. And I'm, I'm I'm almost 30 years older than you. But, you know, I would tell a completely different story of myself now than I would and have I, 20, 30, 40 Absolutely. Years ago. And I think sometimes we think about that. That feels intuitive for us with regard to individuals. Individuals, yeah. And, but it, it, I think it, what I wanted to convey in part in, that, in the chapter about Monticello is that Institutions can do it too. Yeah, I think it's um, human. It's 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 it is it is the same pattern at the at the at the collective level that it is at the at the individual level. It is, and yeah. and so the descendants um, they have something called the Getting Word Oral History Project, in which they uh, the public historian uh, and researchers at Monticello look for people who are the descendants of folks who were enslaved in, uh, in at Monticello, and. There was. I was reading an interview with one of the descendants, and he has a phrase where he talks about the, you know, because black people uh, and the enslaved people were systemically prevented from learning how to read and write, and so there was very little literacy, and so there's not a lot of written documentation. And this is a broader issue with the sort of with the historiography yeah. of slavery more broadly. Yeah. Um, is that so many of the primary source documents we have are from enslavers, but we have very little from enslaved people because they weren't allowed to read and write. But what we do have are stories. What we do have are oral histories that have been passed down through generations. And and one of the descendants 
um, of uh, someone who was enslaved at Monticello said, this is how the word is passed down. And and it, you kind of have these moments as a writer where uh, you just, you see the title and it's almost yeah. like you're reading something, you're reading this <laughs> yeah. long transcript and and it just kind of like stars start to sparkle around it. Yeah. And, uh, and again, and it's like the word, it's, 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 it's the word, it's so much more than a word, right? It is, it is the reality. It is, mm. right? It is the truth that is being passed. Mm. Mm. Um, there's something so interesting about the arc of, of this pilgrimage and the book. It feels to me like at some point you kind of personally went through the same kind of transition in yourself that you made with your students all those those years ago. Mm. That you went to all these places and you kind of looked at the history from all these different directions. And you ended up going back to your own grandparents at the end mm. of the journey. Um, you, you wrote, I had forgotten that the best primary sources are often sitting right next to us. Um, I just, I thought that was, I don't know, I wonder, and I wonder, and I feel like you asked them, you have two living grandparents, and I thought you asked them questions that you'd never asked them before. And I, I wonder if you'd just share a little bit of maybe some of what you learned that you were astonished you'd never heard or known or inter- or internalized before. Yeah, I, you know, I'd visited all of these places, I mean, dozens of places, many of which didn't end up in the book, um, but but certainly informed the way I wrote about the places that did end up in the book. And I ended up going, um, I did have this sort of realization uh, that, you know, I've spent these years traveling across the country, across an ocean, because um, I also went to West Africa. Yeah. Um, asking strangers, you know, people I had never met and people that I may never see again to tell me these personal, in-depth, intimate stories about their lives and their histories. And I realized that I was doing so with a level of intentionality that I had never brought to my own family. And so it felt incumbent upon me to to bring the same, that same sort of energy that I was bringing to, you know, a tour guide at Monticello or to a, a, a Confederate reenactor uh, at a Confederate cemetery in Virginia or um, to the descendant of the um, the person who, you know, founded Juneteenth in Galveston, Texas, yeah. or, um, that I asked that those same sort of questions to the people who have been around me my entire life. And so I ended up going to the National Museum of African American History and Culture with my grandparents, my yeah. grandfather born in 1930. Jim Crow, Mississippi, and my grandmother born in 1939, Jim Crow, Florida. And we're walking through the museum, and I'm pushing my grandfather in his wheelchair. His cane is laid across his lap. And my grandmother's walking a few paces ahead of us. And I have this moment where I'm looking at them, look at the exhibits in this museum, and realizing that so many of the things that are documented in this museum are things that they experienced firsthand. Yeah. And I talked to my grandmother after the museum, after we left, and she kept using this refrain. She kept saying, I lived it. Yeah. I lived it. Yeah. I lived it. Yeah. And I think about the woman who opened the National Museum of African American History and Culture, um, a woman named Ruth Bonner, 
who sort of rang the bell to signal the opening of the museum uh, alongside the Obama family in 2016. And she was the daughter of an enslaved person. Yeah. You know, not the granddaughter, not the great granddaughter, right. the, the woman who opened the National Museum of African American History and Culture in 2016 was the daughter of a man who was born into slavery. As I said, like my grandfather's grandfather yeah. was enslaved. So when my, you know, six-year-old or my four-year-old sit on my grandfather's lap, I imagine my grandfather sitting on his grandfather's lap. And I'm just reminded that this history we tell ourselves was a long time ago. It yeah. just wasn't that long ago we at can all. People touch talk it. about We can literally people, touch it. There are people alive today yeah. who knew, yeah. who loved, who were raised by. Yeah people who were born into American chattel slavery. And so the idea that anyone would suggest that this history has nothing to do with our contemporary landscape of inequality, the idea that anyone would suggest that it has nothing to do with what our social, political, and economic infrastructure in this country look like is, is being morally and intellectually disingenuous. Because this history and the scope of human history mm -hmm. was just yesterday. And I think the contribution you're helping to make to this reckoning that is before us, um, just to this telling of the truth, um, is is also to help. You know, there's this phrase that recurs in your writing, "in the marrow of our bones." Right? It's this. Mm. It's this phrase in English. So we feelings feel something in your gut. You feel it in the marrow of your bones, and you know, it's actually language that points at how we're how we're learning how how emotion and and memory actually work, that they are embedded physically. But it's, it's, it's like the language, it's like the words knew it before we had the science for it. And I, I feel like, you know, we are in this time of where, well, there are all these levels that we, that we have to bring forward, right? We do have to bring forward the ideas and the stories and the history and the facts and all of that. But there's also this level of of us being able to internalize it as a human level, whoever we are on whatever side of this history, our ancestors stood and participated. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's, you know, that's the thing we're talking about here, this connection between, between word and story and, and embodied reality. It's like, I feel like that's what your work kind of helps people. It helps it sink into that level. I wondered if you would read, I, I was also so struck with that, how your grandmother kept saying, I lived it, I lived it. And I wondered if you would read in um, how the word was passed this section in the epilogue, kind of at the end of that, where um, starting with on page two eighty seven. Um, this is also a good example of poetry as narrative nonfiction. I feel <laughs> um, it. So it's the line. It's the paragraph that starts a silence settled between us, and then going through to the end of that section um, on the next page. What I heard was, "I'm still alive." A silence settled between us, and I kept thinking about her refrain. I lived it. I lived it. I lived it. It echoed throughout the room and became the gravity around us. It crept into my ears and made a home in there. I watched the realization wash over her like a tide had risen around her body. There was so much I had not known about my grandmother's life until this moment. So many painful experiences that she still carried deep in the marrow of her bones. I thought of how easily these memories might have slipped away from her had we not sat down. 
These stories might have remained grains of sand at the bottom of an hourglass. I thought about all the ways the world today is at once so different and not so different at all. The exhibits at the museum were not abstractions for my grandparents. They were affirmations that what they had experienced was not of their imagination and harrowing reminders that the scars of that era had not been self-inflicted. When my grandmother said, I lived it, what I heard was, this museum is a mirror. When my grandmother said, I lived it, what I heard was, my memories are an exhibit of their own. When my grandmother said, I lived it, what I heard was, always remember what this country did to us. When my grandmother said, I lived it, what I heard was, don't let them tell you we didn't fight back. When my grandmother said, I lived it, what I heard was, I did not die. I have somehow made it here when so many did not. I escaped the jaws of a cruel thing and lived to tell this story. When my grandmother said, I lived it, what I heard was, I am still alive. That's an incredible passage. I, I was, when I was reading that, I was also feeling like as a writer that, I, I mean, I don't know, I may be imagining, I just felt like that must have been an incredible, those must have been an incredible few paragraphs for you to write. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I'd just never done anything like that before. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just had never, you spend your time, you, you know, you spend your whole life surrounded by someone surrounded by people you love. And then you realize that you've only ever known like a, a very brief part of their story. Um, and I think that it's something I tell educators all the time now. I mean, I, you know, if I had a magic wand, you know, other than paying teachers much more money than they make and, you know, giving school all the resources they need. If I had a magic education one, I would wish that every uh, history and social studies class would um, have students um, interview their elders, mm. whether it be their parents Wonderful. or their grandparents yeah. or their great-grandparents or the, or the, mm, the neighbor, you know, the, the neighbor <laughs> yeah. who, you know, is always sitting on her porch. Yeah. Or, I mean, there was... I just understood, I feel like I understood my grandparents in a way that I I simply couldn't have otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, you know, talking to my grandmother and, and as she described, you know, what she was subjected to in the, in the, you know, there's this moment where she talks about how as a little girl, she's walking, you know, walking to school uh, on the sort of red clay in Florida. And these white students are passing by um, on a bus, and and they start to to spit at her. They start to throw food at her, and they call her the N word. Um, and you know, there's this woman who is a sort of um, magisterial figure mm. in my life, um, who is sort of the embodiments of grace and elegance and generosity. 
and kindness, you suddenly, you know, it's not this, you know, 80-something-year-old woman sitting in front of me anymore. Suddenly it's this nine-year-old girl. Um, and and it, you know, I, we, I keep, if we, we kind of have these recurring things that keep coming up in our conversation, but like it allowed me to see the humanity of my grandmother yeah, right. and the totality of her <laughs> and the complexity of her um, in, in a different way. Um, and the same thing with my grandfather. And I feel very lucky to have been able to do, had these conversations with them. Yeah. And, um, you know, I only wish that I had the opportunity to have had this conversation with their respective yeah, spouses before they passed away. Um, I, I found as I was as I was reading into you that you and I have a um, a shared um, something we're interested in, which is this question of public memory. And um, I'm I'm currently writing a book about uh, that in, involves um, Germany. I spent most of my twenties, most of the 1980s, in divided Berlin, and am mm. also pondering how I saw that country reckoning with its history 40 years on from the war. And mm. and now forty years from that, and being able to look at that entire arc, and also being so aware of myself in my twenties in Germany, and the the grappling they were doing with that burden of history it was very messy at that point and complicated, but it was ever present. Right? It was mm. in every conversation. It was in every room. And I'm so struck at how I was so both to them and to myself was from this much more innocent country right <laughs> like uh, they were from the country that had this crushing guilt of history and i was from the country as as we as we all understood it and had all learned it from that you know wasn't perfect but was always getting better and you ask a question that is similar to a question I keep finding myself asking as I'm looking back at across these 75, 80 years, how the Germans have wrestled with this. Um, you know, you also note the, the Germans were walked through the camps, right? Mm. They were walked through the concentration camps. They were made to bear witness. They were made to remember. There's, there's a lot of complexity to, to how the whole world was also watching for them to mm. grapple with this history. But it has occurred to me, and I feel like you asked a very similar question, you know, if there were these concentrated places of where this atrocity had happened in a concentration of years, but lynchings were kind of town by town and tree by tree. There's no single place to walk through. There's not that concentration of place and of years, but there's an accumulation across many generations. And uh, what would be our equivalent, right, of of that kind of reckoning that they've done? Just kind of yeah. free-flowing with you. Yeah. No, that's the... Uh, it's an important question and one that I've been thinking about a lot. Yeah. And, in, and in thinking about a lot now as I... I'm uh, I'm working on a book project um, that has sort of grown out of my trip to Germany, um, and my trip to Germany grew out of my examination of, you know, monuments, memorials here in the United States, and I wanted to understand how, you know, Germany is often lifted up, you know, as the sort of exemplar of of 
of memory, uh, what it, you know, an exemplar of a nation state that uh, that has accounted for and has um, come to terms with, that has um, demonstrated uh, a sense of uh, regret um, for for what they've done um, and what they did during the Holocaust and World War II more broadly, and. So I went there because I wanted to understand um, what that looked like. Yeah. And and as I'm sure you know, you know, probably even better than me, having lived there for so long, it is it is not a it is not a singular story. No. It is not a story of like, wow, Germany is so so great at this, like we should be like Germany, which I think is how sometimes in the United States the narrative exists, right? I uh-huh. think sometimes from this vantage point, people look at Germany and say, Why don't we just do it like Germany? Yeah. Why don't we without thinking about the complexities and the uh, unevenness and the um, uh, sense of disagreement that exists among um, communities in, in Germany about how how this has, has been done. But I, I think one of the things that motivated me, there's this essay um, that W.E.B. Du Bois wrote um, about his trip that, that he took to Warsaw, Warsaw, Poland in 1949. And, you know, Du Bois is the most preeminent black scholar of the day, perhaps of all time. Um, He is uh, someone who spent his life thinking about the specific contours and manifestation of anti-blackness in the United States. And he he goes to Warsaw and he goes to the land where the Warsaw, uh, the former Warsaw ghetto, where the Warsaw uprising happened. And he's standing on this land where thousands of Jewish people fought back against the Nazis. He's standing in this country where three million Jewish people were killed. Yeah. 98% of the Jewish population in Poland killed in a matter of years. And he's standing there and he's like, I've stood on the land where the KKK has burned crosses I have stood under the trees where black bodies have been lynched. I have worked my entire life thinking about this question of what white people in America do to black people and how we can overcome it. But he talks about how he never experienced the kind of feeling that he did when he was standing on that land in Warsaw. And he talks about how it stripped him of a sort of, uh, what he calls a, a sense of social provincialism. Hmm. And it expanded his hmm. his understanding of the interrelatedness between anti-blackness in the United States and anti-Semitism in Europe. And allowed him to more fully understand the the global contours yeah. of state-sanctioned violence and all the various forms that it takes on. And I feel like I've had a very similar experience. Like that's what going to Berlin and going to Munich, going to Dachau, like that's what those experiences were for me. I mean, I've 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 stood on plantations, I've stood in execution chambers, I've stood, uh, you know, put my hand on the on the poles where enslaved people were were held, where they were where they were beaten within an inch of their lives. I put my my hands in the soil where lynchings happened 
But the feeling I felt when I stood in a gas chamber in Dachau was un was unlike anything that I had ever experienced before. And I think it, it was a very sort of Du Boisian moment for me because I think it also expanded my understanding of the interrelatedness um, and the relationship between, you know, the various forms of violence that happened in different geopolitical contexts um, and expanded my, almost my historical empathy. Mm -hmm. um, it made me feel more proximate mm. to that history. It made that history more intimate. It made it less of a historical abstraction and more, more real, more tactile, more personal. And I think that for me, that is why this has become a sort of larger project for me whether it be in the context of slavery or in the context of World War II or anything else, there's something about putting your body in the place where history happened right. that reduces the gap mm. between you and that period of time that, that creates this sort of temporal proximity. Gosh, I feel like Between that's, you yeah, and that history. That's such a... That's such a strong summation, I think, of the core of this work of it as you do it. I mean, I, I do also, though, want, I want to just raise up this very stunning and shameful uh, reality that you also have lifted up in, this, in the context of this discussion, that Angola prison, which is also a place of pilgrimage for you, I would say, mm. um, is built on the land of a former plantation. And you have pointed out that in, in the book, if in Germany today there were a prison built on top of a former concentration camp and that prison disproportionately incarcerated Jewish people, it would provoke outrage throughout the world. This is not something that is in American awareness. It's not. It's not. And I think it reflects a failure of our collective memory around what slavery was um, and the sort of reverberations uh, uh, of, of how it continues to, to shape our lives today. You know, the scholar Sadai Hartman, um, you know, talk, she talks about this idea of the afterlife of slavery, um, how the, again, the sort of rever reverberations, the residue, um, the ripples of slavery uh, continue to shape so much of what our our world and our society looks like today and and uh, oftentimes I think we fail um, and we have failed for many times and that is not by accident it is reflective of a of an intentional effort to prevent a collective remembrance of what slavery was you know in the mid 19th early 20th century via the lost cause yeah. um, which distorted our sense, our collective sense of what um, what happened during enslavement, what happened during the Civil War, what the Civil War was even fought about, um, to the point where you you have you know there was a study not too long ago that talked about how um, you know most high school seniors you know when asked what the Civil War was about, only a small handful of them said slavery. Yeah, that was shocking uh, to me. And you know. All you have to do is look at the declarations of Confederate secession, mm -hmm. where a state like Mississippi in 1861 says, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest in the world. So they're not vague about why they're seceding from the Union. They're very clear about it. But again, 
you know, part of what I learned in, in this journey is that for so many people, history is not about primary source documents or empirical evidence. It's a story that they to they're told. And it's a story that they tell. It's an heirloom that's passed down across generations. It's something where loyalty to an idea, to a family, to a community, to a sense of self takes precedence over truth. Um, and I think that that prevents us from collectively remembering what slavery was in a way that would prevent us from building a prison on top of land mm -hmm. that was once a plantation, a prison that disproportionately, in which 70% of the people who were held there are black men, and 70% of the people held there are serving life sentences. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, I, it, in a way that we would never allow in a different geopolitical context. Um, right, right. So there's a specific sort of American failure um, that that allows that place to exist in that way. And just, yeah, again, I mean, you've meant just the way you said that, it gets again at how language ultimately builds worlds, um, mm. shapes worlds and sustains worlds. I just, do you have a, we started a couple minutes late. Can we, can we go a few minutes after? Yeah, I have time. Okay. So, as we, um, there's so much I'd like to talk to you about. I, I, um, I wanted. I, I, you are now the father of two children, mm -hmm. um, and, of young children, and um, in this world, and of course, parenting is the ultimate whole body, whole mind, whole spirit occupation. Uh, word, deed, thought, and emotion are all just utterly physical. Um, You've you've written, my children are both respite from all the tragedy transpiring in the world and a reminder of how high the stakes are. I wonder if you'd say some more about that. Yeah, I think uh I think about, you know, these these trips that I, I took when I was writing How the Word Is Past. And uh, you know, let's we were just talking about Angola. I think about how I would come back from Angola or, or come back from the Whitney plantation, um, or come back from, you know, uh, the Confederate cemetery or come back from Monticello. And I'd, I'd be inevitably in all of these places. And I think it comes up in the book. I, part of what I think about are my own, my own kids and, and going back to what we mentioned earlier in the conversation, this sort of arbitrary nature of birth and circumstance. I think it applies in a, when examining like contemporary realities, but also thinking about history, right? Like that, that I was, I just happened to be born at a specific period in time. And that had I been born 20, 50, 100, 150 years ago, the nature of my life would have been fundamentally different than it is today. And I think about that both in the context of myself, but also in the context of my children. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I leave the Whitney plantation and I'm, you know, I, I spent time standing in, in a cabin where enslaved people lived. I spent time walking through the fields enslaved people worked in. I, I spent time looking at the names of enslaved children who didn't make it past their fifth, fifth birthday. Yeah. I think of my kids and I think about how 
what responsibility I have to them um, to to tell these stories and to honor these histories um, so they have a better sense of who they are in relationship to their history, but also so this country can better situate the lives of my children mm-hmm. and and the lives of each of us um, more accurately um, and more humanely. And so I'll be thinking about that and then I would come home and I open the door. And, you know, I think with, you know, I, when I came back from there, maybe my kids were three and one. And, you know, I open the door and my three-year-old, you know, they don't, <laughs> he, he doesn't say like, man, dad, like, come sit down, like, have a cup of tea. It seems <laughs> like you're processing a lot right now. You got, like, you just had this really profound and traumatic and, and jarring experience. Like, let's. Let's sit. Let's process this. No, I come in. I come <laughs> no. through the door, and he's like, "Where you been? Like, get on the ground and be a brachiosaurus. Yeah. Like, it's time to it's time to play." And and I'm so grateful for those moments like that, um, where my kids sort of take me out of my own head. Yeah, um, my kids have made me a much sillier person. They've made me uh, a more present person, um, which isn't to say it happened automatically. I think I had to proactively remind myself to sit in that presence um, and not to simply allow the things that are sort of moving through my head all the time to to preoccupy me so that, to the point that I don't fully appreciate what's directly in front of me. Um, <laughs> I, I want to oh, yeah. ask you a couple more questions about this and then ask you to read some more poems. But I wonder if just right here, if you would read this ode to those first 15 minutes after the kids fall asleep, which is in the above ground book. Because this yes. is just so, like, before you're a parent, you know, the meaning of bedtime. <laughs> Getting to bedtime and post-bedtime. Oh, man. It's page if, 101. If you, don't, you don't fully appreciate, like, how uh, sleep deprivation <laughs> is uh, is a, a terror, or like a torture yeah. tactic until you, uh, until you have kids. So, uh, the poem that precedes this is um, Ode to Bedtime. Yeah. And then this one is... Oh, to those first 15 minutes after the kids are finally asleep. Praise the couch that welcomes you back into its embrace as it does every night around this time. Praise the loose cereal that crunches beneath your weight, the whole grain golden dust that now shimmers on the backside of your pants. Praise the cushion, the one in the middle that sinks like a lifeboat leaking air, and the ottoman covered in crayon stains that you have now accepted as aesthetic. Praise your knees and the evening respite they receive from a day of choo-choo training along the carpet with two eager passengers in tow. Praise the silence. Oh, the silence. How it washes over you like a warm bedsheet. Praise the walls for the way they stand there and don't ask for anything. Praise the seduction of slumber that tiptoes across your eyelids, the way it tempts you to curl up right there and drift away even though it's only 7.30 p.m. Praise the phone you scroll through without even realizing that you're scrolling. Praise the video you scroll past of the man teaching his dog how to dance merengue. Praise the way it makes you laugh the way someone laughs when they are so tired they don't know if they will ever stand up again. Praise the toys scattered across the floor, the way you wonder if it might be okay to just leave them there for now, since you know that tomorrow 
they will simply end up there again. So, you know, this, this, um, this phrase, like, what I want for my children, what we want for our children, I wonder, given how much you're steeped in the language we use communally, the work we're doing and not doing communally, the way we educate and impart knowledge around American history and the history of slavery and our racial identities and you know who we can be to each other in this future. How, you know, how, how would you start to talk about what, what I want for my children hmm. in this regard? I want them... Hmm. I just want them to be joyous. Mm. I want them to be joyous and I want them to recognize the sort of larger responsibility that they that they have, which is to say, you know, I think all the time about how the first enslaved people who came to this country, um, you know, they came to the British colonies that would become the United States in 1619. Slavery wasn't um, eradicated until 1865, formally anyway. But what's also true is that from the moment enslaved people arrived on these shores, they were fighting for freedom. They were fighting for emancipation. They were fighting for liberation. And what that means is that the majority of people who fought for freedom never got a chance to experience for themselves. But so many of them fought for it anyway because they knew that someday someone would. And I think about how my life is only possible, how my children's lives are only possible because of generations of people who fought for something they knew they might never see, but who fought for it anyway because they knew that someday someone would. And I want my children to, to recognize that. I want them to, to hold that. I want them to sit with that. Not in a way that's meant to overwhelm them. Not in a way that's meant to cause them despair. But in a way that is meant to help them accurately situate themselves in this sort of long lineage, this long historical arc mm. that they are a part of. And, and to remember that that is a part of what should animate how we move through the world and what decisions we make and how we treat people and what we work toward. Um, and that does not come at the exclusion of or the expense of joy and love and laughter and levity. But, you know, Part of what I think about all the time is the simultaneity of the human experience, mm. how our lives are both defined by that love, that joy, that laughter, but also defined by anxiety, fear, despair, and somewhere between those is, I think, a responsibility, right? Both recognizing the, the truth of our past and all that has preceded us not in a way that's meant to paralyze us or overwhelm us or, or trap us in a sense of despair, but in a way that is 
meant to help us recognize and remember our own agency. Yeah, and I feel like yeah. the way you're describing that would also be true of what you would want for the white children that they're growing up with. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's what I want for, you know, what I want for my children, but it's what I want for all yeah. children. It's what I want for all yeah. of us. It's what I, I I want all of us to understand that our the what our lives look like are only because of people who've created the the circumstances that have given rise to our lives today and in, in, in ways that are generative and wonderful and and in ways that we're grateful for and in ways that we recognize are profoundly unjust yeah. and in ways that are profoundly unfair and in ways that should should not uh, exist yeah. in the way that they do. And, and I think it's about holding and recognizing and sitting with both of those um, and figuring out how we move forward uh, collectively. So just one more question before I ask you to read some poems. Um, just kind of circling back to this inquiry in our life together with this technology that is going to reshape so much. It's going to, it's somehow going to shape these reckonings we're in and this question of what intelligence is. I just wonder as you, as you live with these new humans in your life and you see them grow and learn organically, um, how does, how do, how are you, you know, how would you think about what you, how they make you, how they expand your understanding of the fullness of what intelligence is in a human life, in a human body. Hmm. You know, I, I think that um, intelligence comes in, in multiple forms. Um, you know, I, I, when I was in graduate school, I, I was, you know, at an institution where um, there were scholars thinking about this idea of sort of multiple intelligences yeah. um, and the way that, uh, you know, how important it was for us to move away from a sort of myopic singular definition of what intelligence looked like or what constitutes as um, being smart uh, and to recognize that that exists in all sorts of different ways for all sorts of different people. And so I, I want my kids um, to to understand that for themselves, to understand that for um, you know, in in for how they understand and observe people um, and make sense of other people in the world, and and I want them to 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 recognize. That the, the, the way that we tell the story of our world um, can take on so many different forms mm -hmm. and the, that there are so many different ways to learn about the world that they live in, that it, that exists beyond, you know, and this is all almost going back to some of the questions that I was thinking about. Um, my prison work is that there's like the and and also in, you know in the context of my teaching of high school, which I guess it's just I guess it's a through line through through my life and my work. But but that education is not something that just happens in formal settings. Right. That the cultivation of intelligence is not something that only happens in formal settings, or that 
that can manifest itself on specific uh, through specific metrics or on a specific test. Um, but it's far more vast and far more expansive and far more beautiful and, and kaleidoscopic yeah. than, than the way that we have uh, understood it. And so I want my kids' definitions of themselves um, and definitions of others um, to, uh, to, be, to be as broad and expansive and kaleidoscopic as we know, as we know the world is. Yeah. So I have chosen um, four poems I'd love for you to read. Um, if there's anything you, you want to read, I'd love that. Um, one of them actually is, you know, you, you, you touched, especially in these last few minutes, on this, this fact of um, what is terrible and what is potentially more generative coexisting. And that it's not that that even having hope or seeing agency to reshape the world is is not to to be able to unsee what makes no sense. It's not to be able to tie it up. There's a poem in Above Ground. Um, we have made it through worse before, page twelve. Mm. I found this one helpful because I feel this way a lot myself. Yeah, I uh, oftentimes the poems I write almost serve as um, as like memos to myself. Yeah. You know, almost a kind of like some, sometimes you need to write something down. This is you know the voice in my head being like sometimes you need to write something down to remind you of its truth yeah. to to hold you accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so as much as this poem says, like begins when people say we have made it through worse before, it could very easily say when I have said we will make it through worse before or something that I am implicated. What I'm trying to say is that I am also implicated in the people. Right. Right. Here. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And I think that that's the case for, yeah. for so many of my poems. I'm, I'm re- rarely trying to singularly look outwards yeah. when making sort of, uh, societal observations without also recognizing the way that I am complicit in or indicted in or um, part of the very thing that I am critiquing or examining um, or, you know, uh, wrestling with. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's absolutely the case here. When people say we have made it through worse before, All I hear is the wind slapping against all the gravestones of those who did not make it. Those who did not survive to see the confetti fall from the sky. Those who did not live to watch the parade roll down the street. I have grown accustomed to a lifetime of aphorisms meant to assuage my fears. Pithy sayings meant to convey that all ends up fine in the end. But there is no solace in rearranging language to make a different word tell the same lie. Sometimes the moral arc of the universe does not bend in a direction that comforts us. Sometimes it bends in ways we don't expect, and there are people who fall off in the process. Please, dear reader, do not say that I am hopeless. I believe there is a better future to fight for. I simply accept the possibility that I may not live to see it. 
I've grown weary of telling myself lies that I might one day begin to believe. We are not all left standing after the war has ended. Some of us have become ghosts by the time the dust has settled. And I wonder also in this book, this above ground book, which is your most recent book, you also, it's another poem about New Orleans, okay, mm. another kind of documenting your ongoing grappling with that. Such deep which roots that city has in you. Here nor there, page 41. Here nor there. I've tried to write these poems before. You know, the ones about the infamous storm and its majestic violence, the flood water that swallowed a city then sat still as night. I think often of the things it took from us that we'll never know we could have had. Nostalgia is a well-intentioned wound. Counterfactuals are a bed of thorns in a room with nowhere else to lay your head. I imagine what could have been but never was. The Christmases with my children in the home where I once opened presents, kicking a soccer ball with my daughter against the same playground where I imagined a life of goals and glory. That home is now silent as a sky of smoke. That wall is no longer a wall, but a pile of wood in a lonely field. I tremble at what I already know, that my children will not know the city beyond the holidays and funerals that bring them here. That I no longer know this city, I have always worn like a tattoo. I still remember the city as something it was kept from becoming. I am still looking for a language that is not covered in mud. Gosh, that last line, I'm still looking for a language not covered in mud. And also, nostalgia is a well-intentioned wound. Mm. Mm. So maybe just the final one that I pulled out, which feels like a good way to end just with this back and forth of what is terrible and <laughs> and what is beautiful and how they exist and are always in interplay with each other. Um, this was from the first, from, from um, Counting Descent, page 56, No More Elegies Today. But I do want to ask if there's anything you want to read that if you feel like this isn't a full, and I feel like I'm really keeping you, and this is heroic now at this point, this interview. No, it's okay. It's okay. Um, <laughs> page 56. Maybe I'll read. Uh, yeah, is there another one you'd what? like to read? Um, I think... If because we've been talking about um, the uh, sort of you know we've been talking about, about a lot of heavy stuff, yeah. but I yeah. also you know want to to name um, and reaffirm like the joy, yeah, and the levity and the laughter. So I was thinking maybe a dance party, yep. Yeah. Um, but I can read that after. No more elegies. Okay. Today. No more elegies today. Today, I will write a poem about a little girl jumping rope. It will not be a metaphor for dodging bullets. It will not be an allegory for skipping past despair, but rather about the back and forth bob of her head as she waits for the right moment to insert herself into the blinking flashes of bound hemp, but rather about her friends on either end of the rope 
who turn their wrists into small, flashing windmills, cultivating an energy of their own. But rather about the way the beads in her hair bounce against the back of her neck. But rather the way her feet barely touch the ground. How the rope skipping across the concrete sounds like the entire world is giving her a round of applause. <laughs> it's so interesting. I haven't read this poem in, uh, <laughs> in a while. I'm taking and, me down memory lane. Well, it's interesting. You know, I wrote this before, um, many years before my daughter was born. Yeah. And and I, you know, I think about the the beads in her own hair now. Yeah. You know, the, we were the round of, uh, of applause that the world is giving her. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's like imagining her in that. Yeah. You know. Um. Let's see. I see it on page eighty-nine. Is that right? In the yeah. above ground dance party. Yes. So, uh, you know, I talked about how, for for me, poetry is the act of paying attention, the act of capturing a moment, a feeling. Um, and, you know, a lot of what we've talked about has been uh, on the heavier side and things that have been um, capturing those moments, observations, feelings, histories uh, that might elicit anxiety, despair, fear, or, or, or speak to violence or oppression. Um, but that's only part yeah. of the human experience. Um, and there are other parts uh, that are worthy of of our attention and our gratitude. Um, and one of those things for me is that uh, we have dance parties uh, after we finish our dinner sometimes <laughs> in our house. And uh, it's it's a delight. Unfortunately, my children have no rhythm, um, <laughs> which is like, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's fine for a six and a four-year-old, but if it continues uh, into the, through their adolescence, it'll be devastating for, for all of us. So uh, to everybody listening, please pray for my, okay. uh, my rhythmless children that they, they can get it together. Mm. But, uh, but this poem is called Dance Party. Sometimes in the evenings after dinner, after the spaghetti has been slurped and I have bribed the broccoli into their bellies, I give both of my children the look. When my eyes meet theirs, they know what time it is. They push in their chairs. They stretch their legs. And we move the table to the far end of the dining room to clear space for what we all know is coming. Alexa, play the post-dinner dance party playlist. And within seconds, Martha Wash's booming voice rolls like thunder over our bodies. Everybody dance now. The electronic keyboard and the drums meet in the middle of the room like two dinosaurs ready to claim the kitchen as their own. Immediately the jumping begins, and my daughter is flinging her limbs like an offbeat octopus, hands slapping the air behind her as if she is trying to smack anyone who enters her sacred space. I turn around, and my son is doing the robot, or is being eaten by a robot, or is trapped in a universe where robots take over the bodies of little boys in peanut butter pajamas. Nonetheless, there is a robot somewhere, and my children, bless them, have not yet learned how to clap on the two and four, so I laugh but also cringe as their small hands make a mockery of the melody around them. Now, halfway through the song, everyone is jumping, and I, caught up in the ecstasy of this moment, fall to the ground and convince this no longer young body that it is a good idea to start doing the worm. And when my children see me, their eyes become pools of possibility, and it is clear they see this as a clarion call to climb onto my back. 
And now, here we are, this strange trifecta, this unlikely trio, a robot and an octopus riding on the back of a worm who will certainly need some Tylenol before bed. And it is in this moment that their mother comes home. And when she opens the door, everyone is screaming. The speakers are blasting, and the percussion is shaking every wall around us. We look up at her, and she looks down at us. And we have no explanation for this strange scene, only an invitation for her to join. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for all that you do and for this beautiful conversation. Um, We'll be producing it in the next few weeks, and we'll let you know well in advance. And Yeah, it's just been a joy to talk to you. Maybe someday we can have coffee and talk about Germany. I would love that. Are you on the West Coast? I'm in Minnesota, but I get to the East Coast a lot. Okay. Well, yeah, please look me up. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for all the time. Um, I had way too many notes. I still had to skip over all kinds of things I thought we would talk about. But um, I just really appreciate it. um, Yeah, thank you. Thank you. No, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Okay. Blessings. Bye-bye.